Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today, we have Melissa McLaurin with us to discuss why lawmakers seem so threatened by transgender and other LGBTQ kids. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. Jack, I uh, had told you a a story about uh, my daughters when they were growing up. We had a rule in our house, Melissa, that boys were not allowed upstairs where all the rooms are in the house. So the boys were not allowed up to their bedrooms. And uh, one night uh, the kids came over and they went upstairs and a boy went upstairs with them. And I said, whoa, 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 you know the rule. And they said, don't worry, Dad, he's gay. And just went upstairs and I looked over at my wife and she looked at me and we kind of I think the point of that is, is that kids are so much more accepting, and I, it took me a while to think, okay, how do I process this and how do I feel about it? Melissa, you are dealing with a lot greater challenges and issues with your children. Um, I read the uh, op-ed piece that you um, wrote, and uh, both Jack and I were struck by the, uh, uh, both the uh, compassion that you show and the, um, just the issue and how uh, you're dealing with it. Uh, maybe you can uh, just give us a, a little background on um, your daughter and um, how she's doing these days. Thank you so much for having me on the show and giving me the opportunity to provide some education to any of your listeners as we talk about how transgender youth fit into the conversation. Um, my, I have identical twins. They are 17. They were assigned male at birth, which is to say that when they came out and the doctor saw them for the first time, they said, congratulations, you have twin boys. Now, from as early as I can possibly remember with my children, they were very different in their likes and their preferences. My son gravitated towards all things that you would consider typically boy. My other child gravitated towards all things pretty, sparkly, and feminine. Now, we thought, being progressive parents, that cool, that's great. We won't make a big deal out of that. But as our children continued to grow, um, from about the age of three, when they learned that we have different body parts, uh, my daughter be, my daughter now, um, I should preface to say that she has socially transitioned, but at the time, started to ask us when she would wake up and have girls' body parts, which was very confusing to us. And so every day, every single day, Connor would ask when she would wake up and be a girl. And every single day, we would have a conversation that you are a perfect little boy with a perfect little boy's body, and you're going to grow up and be a daddy someday. And this went on daily for months and months and months and years. And over time, we saw our child become withdrawn, anxious, depressed, um, started telling everybody that they were really a girl. Um, All the kids in the neighborhood knew. And it got to the point where we needed to seek help from a healthcare team because I didn't know what this was. I just knew that my child um, was depressed and that we were looking at either medicating our child for depression at the age of four and a half or finding some other avenue to bring our child out of distress. And so with the help of our healthcare team, we went with the approach of making the smallest changes possible to bring our child out of distress 
and let that be a kind of our North Star on how best to support her. Now, Jack, I know you had asked earlier about what gender-affirming care really means, and it's certainly a term that's in um, politics a lot, um, a lot of misconceptions out there. And I'll say that when our child was, you know, four, five, six years old, that meant saying, here's, you know, here's a department store full of clothes. What makes you feel best? And allowing um, our daughter to pick out the clothes that helped her feel, um, you know, best reflected. Um, for, for our child, that meant that she chose girls' clothes, but we always gave her the option of which clothes to choose and certainly had both in the house. Um, it didn't take long for her to say, you know, stop referring to me as he, you know, stop calling me he, I am a she. And so with the conversation with our healthcare team um, and as a family, you know, we decided to, you know, have a conversation on what that would look like for us. You know, we made it very clear that it is okay to be a boy who likes to wear dresses. You don't have to be a boy who wears boys clothes and likes football. You know, there's lots of ways to be a boy, but our child made it very clear um, that, you know, that didn't fit for them. And so um, the summer before kindergarten, we began to use she, her pronouns. And I will say that um, our child had been anxious and depressed. And over that summer, we watched her bloom. Our pediatrician saw her at the end of the summer and had to leave the room because she was so overcome with emotion at the positive change in our child that she began to cry um, and and had to leave to collect herself and and told us that you know this was uh, that we were doing the right thing um, by allowing our child's distress to kind of guide us because at the end of the day what we wanted was a happy functioning child. So many questions uh, that. Um, let me start, Jack, if I can. So her brother, do you have other children, too? We stopped with the twins. Okay. Yeah. How's her brother handling it, and how did her brother handle that, uh, the transition? Sure. So twins, best friends, worst enemies, right? Um, always a competition in our house for everything. Um, everything from, you know, who woke up on time um, and, you know, who got you know, their chores done fastest. They don't like to win that one. I'll tell you that. But, you know, at the time when we were going through the early stages of this, um, our son Murphy was really supportive. You know, Connor and Murphy have always been very close. And, you know, Connor was really clear with Murphy about who she was and how she was feeling. And so it was actually harder for my husband and I initially um, because, you know, Connor had already told the kids in the neighborhood and she'd already been telling Murphy. Now, I will say once we allowed what we call a social transition, meaning that Connor, um, Connor's external appearance, um, you know, looked like the girl that she felt um, and that she identified with. And I think after several months, um, you know, Murphy struggled a little bit. You know, he was used to seeing his perfect reflection. And now, um, you know, Connor's personality had blossomed and where she had once been very quiet and withdrawn, now she was commanding a room. And so they had to figure out again what their relationship looked like. Now, over time, you know, Murphy has been her one of her biggest supporters um, and has stood up to her against bullies and, you know, has come to us when there have been concerns. And they are very close siblings who are now looking at, you know, when I go off to college, will we stay together or will we choose different schools? 
I can't imagine how it was in uh, middle school, just thinking about uh, my children and um, being in middle school together at the same time because they're close in age. And like you say, the bullying, the the need to uh, conform to, to what their friends are doing. Um, was it harder in middle school than it is now in high school? Is it um, something that is still a struggle? I think probably similar to all parents, each age has its own unique challenges. I will say that probably the most challenging time for us was actually elementary school. We haven't always lived in Ohio for, we started off um, in the Minnesota school system and our school was wonderfully supportive. We did move down to South Florida for about six months. And while the school policies were amazing, uh, we were in Broward County, which is known for being you know, really um, progressive with a lot of their policies. Uh, the school administrators were wonderful. The teachers were wonderful. The um, parents and th- the kids were a much bigger struggle there. And we would have kids coming to school and giving my daughter messages like, you know, my mom says that you're being abused at home and really horrible information that I would never choose for my children to be hearing from other adults. And Murphy, you know, stood up for Connor and we found out about it kind of later. I noticed some big changes in how Connor was acting. She was becoming depressed and anxious again and really shutting down. And, you know, through conversations with the school, found out that she was just horribly being bullied at school. We did decide at that point to move back home. We had bounced around a little bit um, for my husband's job, and we knew that we were coming into traditionally tumultuous years as our kids were going into adolescence. And so we came back home to Ohio um, and worked with the school system and had some struggles to get through initially with allowing Connor to use the girls' bathroom. But once we got all of those pieces in place, I will say that our school system has been amazing. Uh, my kids have wonderfully supportive friends. We're a part of Nationwide Children's Hospital Thrive program here, which um, is very affirming for gender affirming care. Great hospital staff, and so we feel like you know our our time has been wonderful. The past year has been very difficult um, because there's a lot of politicians who seem very interested in kids like my daughter and how to use her for political gain. And so last year, uh, her health did take a toll because of the pressures of wondering if she was going to be able to have gender affirming care and access to the bathroom in school. Because I strongly suspect that legislators, when they delve into this subject, know very little about the subject and probably have not talked with parents of trans kids I want to ask you this. When it became clear that Connor was identifying as a girl, what's your reaction? Because that's not the same thing as Connor saying, you know, I I run with a limp or I can't play basketball. This is unusual. How did that hit you? Sure. This was 14 years ago. Right. There's a whole lot more information now than there was then. And I remember the day very clearly when I I put the pieces together that um, my child was telling me that they were a girl. And I I came home and I went to Dr. Google, never a good resource, and saw really, you know, terms that were really frightening to me at the time, gender nonconforming, transgender, um, 
And I was, I cried a lot. My husband came home, saw me sitting at the computer bawling and, you know, encouraged me to step away. Um, I'm a nurse. I can't, I don't step away from those types of things. And so I just tried to seek as many answers as I could. I'm used to having the answers or knowing what resource to go to to find them. And um, it was really difficult as a parent to not know what the future held, to not know how best to support my kiddo, to even know if affirming her gender was the right decision to make. Um, You know, I know that saying that she was a boy wasn't working and was causing a lot of distress, but how, how do you, what do you do? And so I think there was a lot of fear um, about how best to support our child. I'm interested that in the op-ed that you wrote, and now as you're talking with Gonzo and me, you've talked about schools being supportive. I find that really interesting when the legislature is not being supportive. Talk to me about the schools and, and how they embrace this difference. I think the amazing thing about educators is they recognize that learning is a vulnerable process. You have to be open to new ideas. You have to be able to make space in your brain for those ideas. You learn how to categorize the world differently. And educators are very clearly aware that if kids have emotional armor in place because they're worried about being hurt by the kids around them, by the teachers they look up to, or by the very environment where learning is supposed to occur, that in fact learning can't occur. What we were told from day one from our very first school was they recognized that Connor would not be able to learn if she was distressed about having to be using a boy's bathroom or being called male pronouns, that they really wanted to make sure she felt safe and secure so that she could focus on learning. And that has been consistent across the years. You know, you've talked about something that I think is not intuitive for most people. And that is when legi- when lawmakers start talking about what bathroom should be used, it just seems like it this it's some type of moral compunction that is driving the show. Where you're saying this is all part and parcel of the child's well-being, and if if the child's not comfortable in his a- in his environment, the learning shuts down. Am I hearing you right? You're absolutely correct. Yes. Um, I think that all kinds of things play into our children's ability to focus on learning and focus on education and feeling safe in their environment is a huge part of that. You would, uh, one would think you'd have to be very involved with your student, with your um, child's teachers then to make sure that um, they're doing what they should be doing and communicating with you. Is that a um, process that you and your husband did? So we've always considered our educators to be partners in our family as we help both of our children learn. And so from the very start, you know, before our kids even went to kindergarten, we very nervously, because it was all very new to us then, went to the school and said, you know, here's our family. How best can you support our kiddos um, to learn? And we have modeled that same process with each new school, whether it was within the same school system or if we moved from Minnesota to Florida to Ohio. And so we have always met with our educators ahead of the school year to say, here's what our um, daughter's needs are. How does that fit within your school practices? And who do I need to talk to to ensure that it will adhere to your school's practices? Do you ever have to get lawyers involved? I've had to threaten lawyers before, um, or at least, um, you know, when we were struggling to 
allow Connor to have the girls back when we were struggling to allow Connor to have access to the girls' bathroom at her middle at her elementary school here in Ohio, there were a lot of back and forth conversations, um, a lot of education that needed to be done. We weren't moving forward, and I did have to talk about how easy it was at the time to fill out the um, the notice uh, for the online form for the Office of Civil Rights, and that I really didn't want to have to do that. Um, but, you know, I needed to at least see forward progress being made. And it was amazing at that point how quickly I got to talk to the people I needed to talk to. This bathroom thing is intriguing because it seems much to do about nothing. So correct me if I'm wrong. It's uh, my, my vision is that lawmakers have this thought of girls with male bodies doing illicit things in the girls' room. It would seem to me that you got all these bathroom stalls, people go in there, they're closed off from everybody else. I'm having a hard time when you really think about it, getting down to what's concerning lawmakers outside of this fantasy they've created in their head, or am I missing something? You are not missing anything. That is my question as well, is what types of behaviors do they think are happening in an elementary school or a middle school or a high school bathroom? Um, it's not like they have a lot of time between class periods where, you know, time can happen for any kind of shenanigans. Most of the time you're in there rushing to get out to get on to your next class. And so that has definitely been our experience that, you know, um, really it's putting there are no risks to girls. There have not been any incidents of a transgender girl going into a bathroom and, you know, having a, a violent experience on another girl. Um, however, the incidence of bullying and harassment on trans kids, you know, ending up in a bathroom of, you know, that is not of their affirmed gender is a whole lot higher. And so um, the risk seems to be extremely misplaced. Melissa, talk uh, a little bit about um, how Connor dealt with sports if she wanted to play or in high school dating. <laughs> Connor did play sports. Um, she has ran cross country in middle school and she played field hockey two years in high school. Um, the Ohio, hang on, I'm gonna get the name wrong, but the Ohio High School Sports Association has firm guidelines and policies in place so that uh, transgender athletes can play safely um, on their schools. And so the really interesting thing is that there's been a lot of attention on this and you know protecting girls' safety in, in sports. Uh, the Ohio High School Sports Athletic, the Ohio High School Sports Association has made it known that over the past seven years since they've been collecting data, that there have been less than a dozen transgender athletes who have participated on girls' sport in the entire state of Ohio in middle school and high school. How many, 12? Less than 12. By the way, I don't know if you know it, but Gonzo has the quarter-mile track record at Westerville. Gahanna. Excuse me, Gahanna for the quarter-mile. Excellent. That was, that was 40 years and, what, 40 pounds ago, right, Gonzo? <laughs> <laughs> well done. Do you still hold the record? I think that's, that's the really important question is do you still hold the record? Yeah, the only reason is they switched over to meters when I was in high school. That's it. That's yeah, the reason. So I have the 440-yard uh, yeah. record. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, so the 
the organization already has policies in place. And so every year that Connor has participated in girls sports, we've had to provide a letter from her doctor stating that she has no biologic advantage. On top of that, we have to provide her actual lab work. So people who do not know how to interpret, I'm assuming, making an assumption that the people receiving the lab work may not know how to interpret that lab work, but we've had to actually provide the lab values um, so that they can determine that she does not have a biologic advantage over other girls. Can you explain that to me? What what does that mean, the lab values, and how can a physician determine that? Sure. So in the, the easiest form, and you know, I'm not a physician and I'm not an endocrinologist, um, but we provide the lab values showing that her um, male hormone levels do not um, surpass an acceptable level that would give her a biologic advantage. Now, my daughter is receiving all of the evidence-based, medically necessary, gender-affirming care that is appropriate to her age. And so she is on a hormone blocker. So her testosterone levels are actually lower than her cisgender teammates. Which leads me to the next question. So we have House Bill 454, which as best I can tell would put a kibosh on what you're doing with Connor right now. House Bill 454 is terrible. Well, let me finish for a second. I mean, I'm writing my quick summary of it, right? So the question is, how do you feel? How does this affect you? You're a mom with a transgender daughter and the legislature says, nah, can't do it. How does that make you feel? What's your reaction to all that? I think if I were to put it in a Twitter post, boil it down to the characters that, you know, are acceptable is that I'm really tired of legislative bodies trying to legislate bodies. Whether you're a woman trying to seek reproductive justice or you are a transgender or LGBTQ individual, those conversations are best had between a your healthcare team and in the um, you know, situation with adolescents, your family, and the child. And it is horrifying to me that um, evidence-based, medically necessary, gender-affirming care that has been supported by every major medical organization, um, that we have a group of legislators that say that they know better. It's disturbing. And, um, you know, I I think that uh, what I get from the legislation um, the nicest thing that I can say about it is they seem to have a concern that children are making decisions that children shouldn't make. What you're telling us is it's not just Connor's decision, but it's um, yours, the physicians, school people. There's a lot of um, a lot of people that are helping Connor along the way. But how do you address that mentality that we can't leave it up to a six-year-old or a seven-year-old to determine their sexuality? Um, it, it's got to be after they're 18. Sure. Thanks for the question. Well, I think there's a lot of misconceptions in a lot of different areas that we could tackle with that question. First off, gender-affirming care when someone is six really boils down to what clothes would you like to wear? completely reversible. Um, In some cases, that means, you know, what pronouns are you most comfortable with? Also completely reversible. In some cases, it might mean a kiddo saying, you know, this is not my name anymore. I wish that you would call me this name. Also completely reversible. It really isn't until a child reaches um, a level of adolescent where puberty has already started 
So no endocrinologist is going to start a puberty blocker until they see that the body has done exactly what it needs to do and is operating as it should, and puberty has already been initiated as evidenced by lab work. And once they see that, um, specifically it's Tanner stage two, um, at that point, um, this you know it's a conversation with the family and the the child, the patient, to determine you know how are you feeling. Is there consistency in how they've um, identified um, what is the child's level of distress? It's a robust conversation and probably not a one and done conversation. In the case of our family, we'd been involved with our medical team, you know, from the very start. Um, and so we had been having these conversations well before puberty had started. And we, you know, were pretty aware of, of the, the path we would go in as long as our daughter was still very consistent that she was identifying as a girl. All puberty blockers do is put a pause. Those medications have been used for a very long time in kids who go through early pu puberty. So if you have, you know, a second grader who for whatever reason starts to go into puberty early, they give those medications to just give a halt until it's a more appropriate time. So for transgender kids or non-binary kids, kids who are identifying as a gender that was not assigned to them at birth, um, after many conversations with the family and, you know, a comprehensive evaluation from a medical team, they may decide to go ahead and um, put a child on hormone blockers that pauses things until the child is a little bit older. Um, in our family's case, you know, that gave us a couple more years to just say, you know, hey, kiddo, are you still, you know, how are you doing? How are you identifying? Are we still supporting your goals? Um, for your gender identity and who you your lived experience for who you are. Um, and then the next steps would be gender affirming hormones. Um, and though you know that comes at a later point in time as well. But again, many, many conversations with the healthcare team, not just one particular provider. We have a whole team that includes endocrinology, primary care, psychiatry, a social worker. We have a team. Um, and so these are very complex, nuanced conversations that are very individualized to the patient and the family and the level of support that is needed. That doesn't boil down into an easy tweet, though, so politicians don't like to talk about those things. Nor uh, easy legislation, because it makes it hard to um, put For that into law. Well, first of all, there's not a lawmaker who understands the word nuanced. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, that's okay, but I actually... Was thinking about it because um, after your op-ed, when I um, I printed it, I saw the comments. I don't know if you went through the comments. Um, I get a kick out of reading Jack's op-eds and then the comments to Jack's, which are brutal sometimes. It's it's amazing that you know you don't go out and, and respond in a in a violent way to some of these people. But how do you know I haven't? <laughs> you might have. <laughs> I was one of them. <laughs> But the, the, the comments, uh, I actually found uh, the interesting part is you got a lot of defenders, but they really didn't seem like they knew what they were talking about either. I'll give you an example because of just what you said. The, this one person says, um, uh, you know, really having a 12-year-old uh, decide their sexuality, you know, he was saying, might as well give them cigarettes and Jack Daniels to re reward their brave behavior, their, their brave decision. So the next person says... Uh, yeah, the answer is yes, they can make that decision. Educate yourself if that's even possible. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, what you're saying is, is that it's not the child doing this in a vacuum. It's a process that, um, that everybody at the end is comfortable that it's the right decision. 
Well, and I think also with the comment that you read, there's another misconception buried in there when they mentioned our child's sexuality. We have yet to talk about my child's sexuality. What we're talking about is gender identity and gender expression, which are very different. And also a valid conversation with anyone. Uh, We always make an assumption and we make cute little jokes about, you know, four and five-year-olds having girlfriends or boyfriends, but suddenly when it's a 12-year-old identifying on the LGBTQ community, suddenly that's a problem. And, you know, you're allowing this child to determine their sexuality. They very well may know. Or for many people, that also is a journey that, you know, they may identify, you know, one way early on and then over time recognize that, you know, they feel a different way. So I I think that, um, you know, allowing our children to make these decisions is important. And as a parent, it's my job to help, you know, guide my child in a safe capacity and not dictate who she is or who she loves um, and help her to, you know, grow to be a happy functioning member of society who doesn't, you know, live in my basement for the rest of their life. Well, I asked you earlier about dating, and I don't know if uh, you didn't get to the answer or decided not to, but to me, uh, that was a um, incredibly difficult time for me as a parent when my girls started to date. Um Maybe it's just a, a gender stupid thing. I wasn't as concerned when my son was dating, but with the girls, it was always on my mind. Is it is this person the right person? You know, do they respect her? Uh, those type of things. Um, I mean, how has it been for you? Has it been an issue yet? It really hasn't been an issue yet. We've certainly had a lot of conversations and you know, our conversation started very young to say, I never want you to feel that you have to come out to me. Please know that whoever you choose to love, whether that's someone who identifies as male or female or non-binary or transgender or agender, just know that I want them to respect you, um, to be good for you and for you to have a healthy relationship. And so that's how our conversation started off very early with our kiddos. And Neither of my kids are super interested in dating. They're very focused on school and jobs and, um, you know, the the issues that are important to them. My daughter does a lot of advocacy work as well. And so I think both of them are waiting to see the person that can kind of keep up with them and all the activities that they do. And then at that point in time, um, you know, are, are definitely open to dating. There are certainly people that they like and, and interests out there, um, but, you know, they also are not in any hurry. I want to circle back to the op-ed and the comments that followed. And I think the comments reflect what I envision goes on with lawmakers, which is what goes on with most human beings. We have a tendency to spout opinions about things we know not. And so I'll be willing to bet those folks that are sponsoring HB 454, I'll be willing to bet that everybody, no matter what side of the political spectrum they are who made a comment to your op-ed, have never met a transgender child or a parent of a transgender child. We like to have opinions whether we know anything or not. That's my editorial for today. Now, here's my question. I'm confident that I read somewhere that the AMA and the American Academy of Pediatricians have demonstrated great sensitivity for trans kids 
recognize that it is an issue that has to be dealt with sensitively and compassionately. And yet in HB 454, the lawmakers are telling us here that there are scientific studies that they're following that support these prohibitions that they're trying to legislate. So, you know, is this like Dr. Wiley E. Coyote they're, they're tracing? I mean, who are, they, who are they paying attention to? Thanks for the question. So I'm a nurse, nurse practitioner, um, not in clinical practice anymore, but, you know, following evidence-based guidelines is the hallmark of medical practice. And, you know, I think any medical provider would tell you that we always want more data. We love data. We love studies. Uh, we love to make sure that the evidence-based care that is being provided is as up-to-date as it possibly can be. A lot of lawmakers look to very old studies that um, were very flawed and draw conclusions that don't fit the picture today. Um, as you mentioned, you know, gender-affirming care and supporting transgender individuals at any age is backed by so many different medical groups. I didn't bring the list with me because you told me that we only had about 30 to 40 minutes to talk today. Um, but if you just look up, go to Google and say what, you know, healthcare groups support gender affirming care, and you'll find the list for days and days and days. It's all of them. Um, and they base those evidence-based position statements on the most current and available evidence that there is. And they're constantly refining, uh, you know, WPATH, um, which is the organization that helps write evidence-based guidelines for the care of transgender individuals, literally just put out their updated guidelines um, this month um, based on the most up-to-date evidence and actually loosened some of the previous restrictions on, um, on gender-affirming care. What's the name of that group again? WPATH. W-P-A-T-H. Okay. The, the legislation is incredible. Now, Jack and I deal in our jobs with interpreting statutes and trying to um, read sometimes the intent of the legislators that, that drafted it. But, you know, uh, writing uh, this as if it's the New England Journal of, of Medicine, you know, that uh, now it's law so it can't be challenged to me is, uh, I don't know, it's... Um, disingenuous um there's there's just too much controversy here to make this these paragraphs uh, you know to take it seriously um there's another bill though that you were um looking at and that was um 616 616 and uh melissa when i was looking through this i have said this on the show before i had a um law professor and the one thing that he said that stuck out in my mind was uh, always look at the definitions because that's where the devil is in, in the definitions. But as you look at uh, 616, I was reading this thinking, well, this can't be bad. It starts out with, the Board of Education shall be the sole authority in determining and selecting all of the following. And then it lists textbooks, instructional materials, academic curriculum. And then it takes it right away in the next paragraph. <laughs> The school district shall not select any textbook, instructional material, or academic curriculum that promotes any diversive or inherently racist concept described in the following sections. And so I was telling Jack, they gave the school board complete discretion to do exactly what they're telling the school board to do and nothing more. Uh, it's just crazy. Now, how does this bill affect your daughter? Well, I'd love to know, as an attorney, 
How do you define divisive concept? <laughs> we make a lot of money because you can't. Correct. And that is the absolute truth. Yep. The more that a law is vague or unclear, the more the lawyers can dig into it and, uh, and charge uh, their clients. Um, but when you write contracts, you try to write out that type of vagueness, right, Jack? Sure you do. Um, I'm assuming it's in here because they really don't know what they're doing and they want the courts to make that decision through court cases. Or they're just really trying to make a point without thinking of the consequences of their act. Yeah, how do you put this in practice? Because somebody's gonna have to define that at some point. Right. Well, and I think it has a huge impact not only on LGBTQ plus kids and their families, um, but they also talked about, you know, racism in there as well. How do you define that and how do you, what is the yardstick that you measure what topic is considered racist and what topic is considered valid history? It puts our teachers and our educators in an impossible situation to be able to um, you know, adequately teach our young people on, you know, our history or, you know, any concept. You know, again, I mentioned earlier that it's a really vulnerable process to um, to learn and be open to new ideas. And you've put teachers in an impossible situation to not know what those guidelines are and you know, what counts as divisive. Well, this was part of our discussion last week with the gent, uh, the president of the Ohio Education Association. So the the statute starts off with, we want to prohibit anything that's divisive, which certainly sounds like a good idea, but then they preclude any discussion of critical race theory. Well, the critical race theory just explains history. It's not divisive, unless you just don't like to hear about our dark past. So the legislature, as far as I can see, is just doing what sounds good to a certain segment of society, but not really, or not really, not at all addressing the challenges that come with trans kids and their parents. In fact, they're working at odds with you as I see it. Well, I know my daughter had written a response for the House bill um, with the intent of publicly testifying when they open the legislative season up again to, to have that conversation that, you know, she's in a supportive environment. She's secure in who she is now. That hasn't always been the case. But her fear is that it will tell other kids impacted by this particular piece of legislation that who they are is not okay and should be a secret, actually. For some kids, they do prefer to be stealth and not necessarily share that they're transgender. But for my daughter um, and, you know, her unique case, she wanted to share who she was because she felt like otherwise it would, you know, be hiding a, an important part of, of her. And, you know, she wouldn't while she may be able to talk about that at school under this legislation, certainly the teacher couldn't encourage that kind of conversation or, you know, talk about how there's lots of different family structures and lots of different types of people and that all are valid and, and worthy to be loved and accepted in society. And so that is her big fear is that it will tell other kids that who they are or who their parents, you know, are or their family structure is wrong and shouldn't be talked about. Or maybe they might hear her and say, wow, somebody's standing up. I mean, that goes either way, doesn't it, in terms of the reception of the message? Well, I would certainly hope so. We, I love this generation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, 
had a conversation with my daughter on the issues that are most important to her, fully expecting to hear about LGBTQ equality as being number one. And it actually wasn't. You know, what she talks about is, Mom, this has been my life from the get-go. This is, you know, this has been the constant background noise. She's most worried about... Um, you know, the state of the planet and, you know, and if things are still going to be here. She's very upset about capitalism. Uh, She's very upset about, you know, bodily autonomy. And so it's been really fascinating to see this generation start to push back against legislators who are saying, we're going to tell you what you can learn about, what you can do with your body, um, you know, who you can say you love, all of those things. This, uh, either of these House bills, do you know where they are in the process? They're still sitting there. Um, it sounds like a lot of our legislators are focused on reelection. Um, and so we will see as you know the season starts back up. I, I will say that the um, resolution that was proposed for the Ohio State Board of Education this week was a little bit of a surprise. Um, you know, there were a bunch of us down at the State Board of Education yesterday to give public comment for a proposal that is um, similar to what is happening in Virginia right now. Uh, and so there was a lot of um, public comment denouncing those proposed recommendations. And to be clear, those are proposals mm-hmm. to push back against the expansion of Title IX, which provide uh, protection against discrimination against trans kids. Correct. Yes. Again, putting teachers in an impossible, putting schools in an impossible situation where they're having to decide if they're going to uphold Title IX or not. One of the things that this um, House Bill 616 does too is it, I think, shows the uh, Board of Education that they're not trusted by our lawmakers at all to do what's right, to to um, to set policies. Uh, basically, the lawmakers are saying, um, as you said earlier, we know best, we're smarter than everybody, and uh, while uh, you can go ahead and do these things, here's the prohibitions that we're going to write into law. Um, not the best way to educate our children, in my opinion. Not hardly. You know, um, Gonzo and I were talking about this issue, getting ready for today. And, and the subject, it, it, the way I think we both view it is all of us see things in life that make us question, or we see things that scare us, things that are different. Sometimes it's a physical disability, maybe somebody with Down syndrome or somebody who's paralyzed. You know, it just makes you stop. Or sometimes it's a trans kid. But the issue isn't that difference. That's that human being. The the issue is with us and how do we receive that person into our lives. The person doesn't have the problem. It's how we handle those people. It's how we it's how we make them feel good. So these legislature, these lawmakers. You know, the problem isn't with the trans kids. The problem is with how the, the lawmakers look at these people. And the only question is, are they human beings? And the answer is yes. Okay, they're provided all the rights that everybody else is. They should be treated the same way. Well, you had mentioned earlier that you wondered if when they were writing this legislation, if they had even met transgender people. 
And I do know that it came out in a news story that the the person who wrote House Bill 454 was very open in an, in an interview that he had not met with any transgender people before he wrote the legislation. And I think as a constituent, I would hope that the people proposing legislation, that they truly did love people, right? That they're there to um, advocate for the wishes of, of the people who vote for them and to represent the ideas of the people who voted them into office. And it's been really disheartening um, as just a member of the public to see how politics works up close and personal in people kind of, you know, caving to special interest groups. You know, we we certainly don't have representatives in office that represent the true voice of the people. And really, as a mom of a transgender kiddo, I'm tired. You know, we're absolutely going to keep fighting, but it seems to be coming from every direction. It feels coordinated. Um, and this is my daughter who deserves every ounce of the same rights and access as my son but because you know she has you know because she identifies differently than how some of these representatives feel she should that she is othered and they want to deny opportunities for her and it's it's really hard as a parent do you have um, some idea of what special interest is behind the legislation what groups oftentimes the the legislation is brought to a particular representative who is, you know, um, uh, maybe eager or overeager to, to do it. But is there a, a specific group that's behind it? I wish I had the name of the groups in front of me, but I do think if you look to see who is writing the legislation in Texas, in Arizona, in Alabama, in Florida, you'll see some similarities. I told Jack of a story that um, my daughter... Um, played football in uh, seventh grade and all the parents are there watching and that's about it there's nobody else and we're standing there a bunch of dads watching these people play and they're talking and one says where's your son and I said that's actually my daughter out there and they stopped talking to me not that I really cared that much about it but it I felt like oh my god you're the one you know with the <laughs> daughter that's playing football and I imagine um uh have you had that issue with other parents? Have they looked at you sideways or you got a vibe that, oh, you're the one that has the daughter? Um, Sometimes, but we also get a lot of people who rush to support us too. I think that it is a topic that brings about a lot of strong emotion. And certainly we have seen where some people probably are a little standoffish with us, but then we absolutely have other people who make a point to come up and say, I support you. I support what you're doing. I support your kiddo. How can we help? And th that's wonderful. Melissa, being a uh, parent is a wonderful blessing. Um, I think we all three would agree with that. And being a good parent is sometimes hard. And just talking to you today, I know that you're a great parent. And uh, thanks for coming on the show and talking to us. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a wonderful experience. Well, it's been wonderful having you with us, Melissa. Our thoughts to WOSU and our sound engineer, Eric French. If you like what you've heard today, tell a friend. We want this show to be more than just us. We'd like it to be all of us. We'll be back in a few weeks with another important social justice issue. Until then, so long. <laughs>